This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. We've spent the past three weeks, in fact, I would even say it's before that, but we didn't tag it with any terminology but talking about revival. It's a dangerous term because with it comes a lot of baggage in our modern day. There's a lot of movements of grace that have taken place in the world that are called revival. And I'm very jealous for the term, and I have very an old school understanding of it. And yet also it's important to note that revival isn't meant to be something that shows up with a bomb blast uh, one day in the church, and then it's, you know, dissolves down to nothing, and then, you know, in the year 1872, something else happens. The church is meant to stay alive. It is meant to stay breathing. It is meant to stay living with a fulcrum being Jesus Christ, with the key point of their existence being his glory. And yet we have a tendency, because of this world in which we live, to be pulled away from that center. So revival is mainly returning to that which gives us life. It's returning full force to the centrality of Jesus Christ, the import of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus Christ. And we have a lot of baggage that goes along with it. And so to this message today, I want to sort of remove and peel away some of the barnacles, and I want us to refresh and rehearse what really matters. But I have a desire for our church to live this, not to esteem it, but to live it, and to live it for the rest of our days. Not to just have a spark where we all look back on the year 2017 and say, it was a good year. It was a good I remember what God did. God moved in our midst in such a powerful way and we were renewed in our covenant relationship with him. We saw him more clearly. And so what happened to you now? Well, you know, those things come and go. The spirit of God doesn't come and go. The glory of Jesus Christ isn't intended to just be back then or in the future. In other words, God desires us to be clean to be right with him, to be sharp, to be athletic in our fitness so we are not getting blubber rings around the middle and then getting in shape again and then building up the, the fat cells again. In other words, where we are on our game. And that is how we live as the church. Easier said than done. And every single one of you in here would acknowledge that. Our history shows this. Some of you, it's more like this. And so what I'm interested in doing is instead of going up to a high and then crashing down to a low, which is sure to happen, it's sort of like the classic sugar high. Is revival just sort of a whole bunch of hostess cupcakes? And then we're just going to crash into the dirt? I'm interested in establishing a behavior pattern in our lives that is a constant, where we don't have to elevate our sensitivities and then only to see them drop but to see God elevate us to the way he intends us to live and then stay there and constantly be refined and sanctified in that state. So the reason I bring this up is because I recognize how vulnerable I am to getting off course. Now, I live very serious in my Christianity. 
I am all in. That's what I'd tell you. Any day of the week. I wake up focused. I wake up intentional. First moments I'm getting out of bed, I have a habit. And that is to declare the truth of my life. I know why I'm here. I know what I'm here for. And I freshly consecrate my body, my life, my day. And I say it belongs to Jesus Christ. That's serious. I mean, I mean business. And yet Eric Ludy is very distractible. A few weeks ago, I was talking about diversions. The things in my life that God was putting his finger on that, you know, some people get diverted with, I mean, just ridiculous stuff out there. But I get diverted too. There are distractions in my life, but because they seem close to ministry, they seem close to what I'm trying to focus on, I can justify them. Like, I really need to see that data. I'm a data guy, you know, so I want to see statistics, how this is working. And so what I found is that when I start focusing on these things that are around the outer edge and I lose sight of the center, and it might just be for a moment, but it dulls me overall in my spiritual life. So a few weeks ago, we were talking about diversions or distractions, whatever term would work best for your soul to understand it. Things in your life that you turn to, maybe it's not daily, but maybe it's daily, maybe it's hourly, but it's something that is always taking your gaze off of what God is doing. When I am doing a study in Scripture, the dangerous thing about using anything on your computer for study, I don't know if you've ever found some dangers in that, but the danger is beeps and buzzes and dings, okay? When when I have, I had to learn that there is no benefit to having some announcement of an email come into my upper right corner. I didn't choose to have it. I just upgraded to a new iOS in my Mac, and then suddenly, boop, I have an email. Whoa, well, I, I better look at it. I mean, that has nothing to do with what I'm focused on. I was reading scripture on my computer. That was probably the mistake right there. And then, boop, something comes up to the upper corner. It's like, huh? Oh, must see. Have you ever had it where something bleeps and you're like near your computer messing around over here and then it disappears? So what was that? I better find out. And I think I've told you in the past, it's always Lowe's home improvement for me. They're always sending out some email for me. It's like, I could care less. And then someone says, why don't you unsubscribe? That's a good idea. (laughs) In other words, there's things in my life that I recognize I'm susceptible to. So what do I do? I remove them. I get that crazy ding out of there. I turn off my volume first thing in the morning. My volume is not on my computer. I can't hear a ding, even if it came in. Purposeful. When I'm in study, I want to be in study. That does not mean, even though I have that intention, that I will not get distracted. There are so many things that are vying for the attention of Eric Ludi. I need to recognize that that is a fact. Instead of be the victim, I need to be proactive in saying, all right, that means this world and this, the devil in this world wants to get my attentions off something. I needed to find what that something is, and then I needed to find how I stay tuned to what I'm supposed to be focused on. So this week, and this is why it's coming up afresh, I've removed all these diversions, okay? You've heard about that in the past, right? In the past few weeks, I have gone multiple weeks without certain diversions in my life, which are so small. I mean, come on, I had so many, I had a great justification for why they were in my life. However, God pinned them as diversions. Eric, you're losing sight of me whenever you do that. Really? Oh, come on. I mean, that's harmless. And so I removed them. I've gone for multiple weeks, and guess what? This week, I had something new that crept in. And it mainly had to do with the fact that we launched a whole new thing in our ministry, and it created a whole bunch of fascinating things for me to poke at and look at 
And so the next thing you know, I find myself diverted. This is in the middle of me teaching you not to be diverted. And guess who gets diverted? Me. So the reason I'm sharing this with you is not so that you can you know, feel really good that Eric gets diverted and then take the attention off of you. It's like, oh, it's him. He's the guy. He's the one getting diverted. Is to say that in this culture, it is extremely difficult to do what we are doing here in this church. Everything is stacked against us. There is nothing aiding and abetting our focus on Jesus Christ outside of God himself. And we need to help each other focus. And so if my one lone role in your life is to say, hey guys, we cannot lose sight of what matters most. So what am I doing? If I see something that is diverting me and I get that conviction, it's like, whoa, that, even that? I'm convicted of that? Mm -hmm. I remove it. If you have a ding in your life, anything that's going into that upper right-hand corner of your computer screen, I don't know how Windows works, if it's upper left or whatever, but if it's upper left or upper right, I don't care. If it's going up into your view and it is causing you to be turned away from a clear focus on Jesus Christ, I'm going to recommend that you seriously consider turning that ding off or that opportunity for the devil or the world to engage you in such a way that turns you away from what you know you should be doing. He who knows what he ought to do and does not do it, sins. I am very interested in us as a church being focused and doing this. We have seen an incredible movement of grace in our midst. I have heard many testimonies from amongst you of things that are taking place in your individual life as far as the clarification of why you're here and what you should be doing with your time. This is a very precious thing. Remember in Proverbs, the strong man retains his riches. We have been given something. Hold on to it. Keep focused. If the Spirit of God convicts you, heed it. Listen to it. Do not ignore it. Do not justify it and compact the dirt afresh. The fresh tilling of God has been coming through, planting seeds and water in it. Do not go back to old patterns. Do not look at yourself in the mirror and then immediately forget. Do not be the dog that returns to vomit. These are the templates of the fool. This is how the fool behaves. I do not want to be the foolish virgins that have everything that they need to hold the oil but don't have any oil in it. I do not want to be the tares, the ones that hang out near the wheat, esteem the wheat and say, oh, what wonderful wheat wheat is, and then not bear fruit. I do not want to be the goats that can say bad just as well as the sheep can, and yet they do not do the work of the kingdom. I want to be doers as Christians. Operation Wologo. Some of you are like, this doesn't sound very exciting. How about my title, though, the subtitle, The Fourth Step Towards Changing the World? Now, if you just arrived, you're sort of missing something, aren't you? The first three, that'll teach you. You should hang out here every week. So I'll go through those in a very brief sense. But what we've been going through, even though in the title it doesn't say anything about revival, I'm laying foundation stones of how an individual is revived, is brought to a living state where they function correctly, how a marriage, how a family, how a church how a nation 
This is how revival works. And revival is that which is dead coming to life. That which once bore fruit, but no longer does, actually beginning to turn green again. To show forth the signs of the reason it was intended by God for creation in the first place. To bear fruit. To showcase something. King Uzziah. Sort of a fun name. I, I've always liked saying it. Ooh, you start with an ooze. That's actually in the beginning of his name. It's sort of, it, it, the guy's name is actually Azariah. And, uh, but I, I don't know if this was like a nickname. Uh, like Jesus' name comes from the name Jehoshua. But then it shortens, like William to Bill. I'm not sure if it's the same in the Hebrew, if that's how it worked. But Azariah becomes Uzziah. So if you were an Azariah, it's sort of like being William and being called Bill, or being a Robert and being called Bob. Uh, and so this is Uzziah. This is King Bob. Okay, so this is the shorter name for it. Alternative name, Azariah. So if you study this character in Scripture, it can be a little confusing. And this happens with quite a few of the kings, where you have two variations of the name. Same guy. Alternative name, Azariah, who was he? He was the 11th king of Judah, crowned in 783 BC. So in the history of the nation of Israel, after David, we have Solomon, and after Solomon, we have a split kingdom. So the kingdoms to the north are actually known as the kingdom of Israel. They were 10 tribes out of the 12, and the kingdom to the south were known as Judah, and that was Judah, the, kingdom of, or the, the tribe of Judah, and the tribe of Benjamin. And so those two tribes form the, tri- the king kingdom of Judah. And so we have kings to the north. And so if you study the Bible, you're going to see a whole lineage of kings to the north, all bad guys. Every single one of them did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's just unprecedented terribleness. To the south, we actually have some good guys mixed in. I mean, there's a lot of bad kings from Judah, but there were some good kings from Judah. And what's interesting is if you were to ask me, tell me about Azariah, was he a good king or a bad king? Ah, Well, I'll answer that in just a second. But the end conclusion is he was a bad one. And that's really sad when you know how he started. And so it's a hard story to tell, but it's a good one when you're talking about revival. So his name means the Lord is my strength, or Yah is my strength, which is Jehovah. Early reign. Uh, The Bible says he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Now that's a rare statement for any king. And so to see it associated with this man, if you just stopped right there and didn't keep reading, you would love this guy. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Oh, yeah, that is such a rare thing to see. But great job, buddy. Later reign. The Bible says his heart was lifted up to his destruction. He brazenly invaded the priest's office and offered incense, even against the clear warning of the priesthood, and was struck with leprosy while in the midst of his disobedient act. He lived his remaining days in a several house, which was a hospital, and died there. And he was buried in a lonely grave. Well, that's that's sort of a depressing story. This is what you're going to teach on today, Eric? What kind of story is that? This is the life that many of us have lived. In other words, you have had your moments where you have been awakened. You have seen something clearly. And then... Your heart was lifted up in disobedience. What do you do? Do you want to die in a several house? This is a weird, strange statement. Never called it that. Do you want to die in a hospital with leprosy? 
Do you want to be unclean to the end of your days, or do you want to be revived? Now, what's interesting about this is in the story of Uzziah, you don't actually see a reviving. But if you understand Uzziah, just like most of the characters in the Old Testament, as a symbol of something, what you see is a nation known as Judah, or much like us, that has known the strength of the Lord in our life. We have done that which was right in the sight of the Lord. We repented and we believed. But then something entered in and steered us away from the clear word of God. And we find ourselves defying that which we know we ought not to do, we still do. Uzziah was told by the priests, they actually tried to block his way, do not do this. Dare not mock Jehovah by trying as the king to do what only a priest should do. Get out of my way. And he offers incense in the house of God. And as he's doing it, he's struck with leprosy. And he never recovers. A nation hangs in the balance. Our individual lives, our church. We could stay that way. We could remain in the hospital the rest of our days. Are we still the king of Judah? Yeah. Are we still the church of Jesus Christ? Yeah. But we're sort of a weakened version, aren't we? Or we could bring that version of living to its end and be revived. The sad life of King Uzziah. He had something, but he lost it. I, I don't know about you, but if you've ever tasted the grandeur of following Jesus, the cleanness of soul, the peaceful sleep that comes with a clear conscience, the sense of knowing you're right where God wants you, even if you're going through difficulty, but you can rest with peace that passes all understanding. And there's a joy even in the harshest moments, the harshest circumstances, because you know that you have an intimate bond with God, even though your circumstances be difficult. As a Christian, we have something. And that is we have a calm of soul, a joy in our soul, even in difficulty, when we are walking right with God. And if you've ever tasted that, and you're not tasting it now, that's an ache. What should it drive you to? To say, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get that back. I want you to know the nature of our God is redemptive. The reason you feel conviction is because God wants to heal your leprosy. He wants to heal that which is separating you from him. He wants to heal that which has caused you to lay down in a hospital bed. Even though you be a Christian, you are non-functional. You need others to tend to you, but you cannot give anything to anyone else. That isn't the intention of what God wanted for your life. So what do you need to go back to when you lifted up your heart in disobedience? You need to repent. God, I did wrong in your eyes. I violated what your clear words said. The priesthood stood in front of me, which is the symbol of the word of God. They were the handlers, the dispensers of the word of God. And it said, do not do this. And yet I bypassed that. I shoved them out of the way and I did it anyway. God, I've sinned in your sight. I am deserving of this curse. I am deserving of the penalty of sin and the wages is death. And I recognize that. But I know you are a gracious God who forgives. And I know what the shed blood of Jesus Christ has done. It has washed away all of this leprosy. And so I come to you afresh and humble myself and repent of this behavior and turn to you in confidence, knowing that you can heal and will, in fact, heal. And he does. He revives 
that which first comes to its end. Our behavior that is like King Uzziah has to come to its end for true revival to come. The message's name is Operation Wologo. And that comes from a little Leonard Ravenhill uh, snippet that Leslie and I have heard many times in years past. I think it's from one of his interviews. If Leslie was here, I could ask her more clear. But Leslie has this one interview of Leonard Ravenhill that she'll listen to every now and then. I'll hear it in the background. We're getting ready for bed at night, and there it is. It's going. It's an interview we've heard many times, and yet you never grow tired of it. And I think it was in that that he just, as an answer to one of his questions, talks about, woe, low, go. And it's good. I'm going to share it with you today. Now, this isn't what Leonard Ravenhill, I'm sure, would teach it far better than I would. And it wasn't a teaching. He just mentioned it. So now I'm going to go through it just a little. It's good stuff. The sad life of King Uzziah, he had something, but he lost it. Uzziah was the picture of the entire nation he ruled. They were a people who once had the strength of God, but had backslidden and were now in need of a, of a revival. The great woe, low go. Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died. Now I underlined that just so you would not miss it. I have not taught you on King Uzziah just to lead you to a state of depression. I've led you to King Uzziah to show you that when you deliberately choose to put off the old man, when you deliberately choose to bring to death that behavior that is crippling your forward progression, Judah is lost as long as its king lives in such a state of rebellion. Judah cannot be repaired. But when that king, that self that sits enthroned, finally steps down and gives up its life, then something amazing happens. And that's what we see in Isaiah 6, is there is a trigger that takes place when King Uzziah dies. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Seraphim, oh, it's going to describe it here. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, woe is me. See, I'm putting a puzzle together for you. Now, I know woe is spelled with an E, and I didn't in the title. You're going to have to go along with me. Woe logo all matches when it's W-O-L-O-G-O. It's really cool. If I spell woe correctly, ah, it loses something. So woe is spelled correctly, I believe, W-O-E. It's not a word I use very often. <clears throat> woe is me, for I am undone. So let's stop right there. King Uzziah dies. What does Isaiah see? Isaiah is a picture of us as well, of a remnant that refuses to stay down, that refuses to be in a backslidden state. What does he see? He sees the Lord high and lifted up. There is no greater remedy than we could ever get for the church of Jesus Christ than to get the woe. How do you get the woe? There's something that precedes the woe. The vision of the high and exalted one. The holy, holy, holiness of Jesus Christ. That is what brings the woe. 
And without the woe, you don't understand the low or the go. I haven't gotten to those yet. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Lo, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. You see, the vision of the high and exalted one leads to the woe. It is without any effort of our own or with Isaiah having any effort of his own, he sees his condition. You do not need to pursue sin in your life. You do not need to try and make yourself clean. You do not need to try and dig down deep and find conviction. You need the woe that comes from the clear sight given to you by the Holy Spirit of God of who Jesus Christ is. And when you see it, there is no need for you to expose something. It exposes itself. It's drawn to the surface like dross. And as a result... The woe comes, but what does the woe prepare you to understand? The low. This has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. You see, the grandeur and the majesty of the vision causes us to repent, causes us to be cleaned. But it also not just shows us our sin, but shows us the sin remedy. It shows us his mercy. It shows us his grace. And this transforms us afresh. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. Woe, lo, go. You see, this pattern is a pattern of revival. This is what takes place. But what caused the revival? Something had to die. And then Isaiah needed to see something. We need to let go of our life, the entrapment. Some of us know exactly what's holding us back, but we refuse to let it go. If you really desire to live and you're tired of the leprosy and you're tired of the hospital bed, you need to say adios to that life. You need to repent of it, put it off, and turn. And when you do there is now opportunity for a clear vision once again of what moved you in the first place. In the year that King Uzziah died, woe, lo, go. But first, the rebellious throne sitter must die. Self must be denied. In this country, we have so many comforts We have so many things that have been dished out to us with the argument that we deserve them. In fact, most of Christianity today is under the delusion that our purpose here on earth is the comfort of man, the pleasure of man. God created us to enjoy his creation, to be satisfied in it, and to live a long life and to die at a ripe old age with all of our family around us in our pleasure. And yet... You're going to have a tough time backing that in Scripture. God has called us to something greater than our own pleasure. He has called us to something greater than our own comfort. 
Many of us have a blockage in our life. And even when you hear a message like this four straight weeks, it is funny, but there's still rationalizations of why you keep certain things in your life. It's like, well, I can't really go without that. And I'm not saying to go without that which sustains, that which supplies life. In other words, I want you to get dressed in the morning. I'd prefer you to eat, drink, please do. However, there's certain things that are taking you off your game. Your drinking water, for instance, may not be what is distracting you. Some of you, it is food. I had one of my children that actually, when we were going through and asking God to show us, one of them, it was food. And it was sugary food. And so, very specifically, there was a, a statement within their life to say, I need to separate from this. And because that is actually, I'm craving it throughout the day. And it's distracting me. Well, that was a child saying that. And I'm going to tell you, my prescription for you isn't to stay away from sugar, stay away from movies. I'm not going to give you any prescriptions. I'm going to say, if something is keeping you away from a focus, then allow the Spirit of God to put his finger on it. Because every single one of us is uniquely distracted. There could be common distractions amongst us all, but every one of us has points of vulnerability. So first, the rebellious throne sitter must die. Then the vision comes. And I capitalized it for you because I'm going to introduce you to what that vision is. The vision comes. Then the woe low go unfolds. Woe, I am unclean. His holiness reveals my unholiness. Holy means other than. And so if you are seeing the other than one, the one that is other than, other than what? Other than us. He is not like us. So when you see it, not just one holy, but three holy. The tri-holy God, holy, holy, holy. He is other than me. He is really other than me. He is so other than me. What it does is his holiness reveals our unholiness. And that's the woe. Some of us are still needing the woe. We can hear all this, but we don't feel a woe. There is no woe there. Without the woe, we can't move forward. And so if there's something blocking the flow, we need to move it out of the way. Lo, your sin is purged. Now, you know that that only has weight if you know you have sin? You know, it really doesn't mean anything if I were to tell you, hey, yeah, uh, I, think, I think this was uh, Ray Comfort's illustration. Uh, yeah, uh, someone paid your $50,000 speeding ticket. And you're like, well, I, I wasn't even speeding. I wasn't, wasn't even guilty. But first, Ray Comfort says, tell them about their speeding ticket. Yeah, you were clocked going through, what was it, a blind children's school convention or something, which was like uh, speed limit, you know, 15, you went through at 75. And you got it right here. It's all clocked. Yeah, you're, you're guilty. You're going to be thrown into prison. But someone came and paid your, your fine. In other words, it doesn't make any sense to you unless you know you're guilty already. Unless you have the woe, the low means nothing. The low flows out of the woe, but the woe flows out of the vision, which flows out of the willingness to let go of your previous life, to repent and to turn. You see, we need that vision again. Some of you have had it in your life. You've seen clearly at some juncture of your life. I see it. He's worthy of everything I am. Why have I held on to anything? But then because of the world in which you live, you have been duped into seeking you, your comforts, your life, your sustenance, instead of seeking his glory. 
So your sin is purged. He has removed my sin and made me fit to be a glory bearer. Go. This people must know. Every revival that has ever taken place on earth, one of the number one attributes of it isn't just conviction of sin, isn't just the fact that we are revived unto praying and and holding on to God in prayer, but it is also evangelistic. People go into all the world. That's where almost every missionary flows out of. They flow out of a reviving in the church. And they're like, God, you are so good. I've seen you now. I need to share this with the world. If you don't have the woe, then you don't understand the low. And if you don't understand the woe and low, well, then what are you going for? What's moving you? The go is supposed to flow out of the woe and the low, which flows out of the vision. Capital T, capital V, the vision. You see, if you don't have the vision, then you don't have the woe, low, go. And you're going to stink at being a missionary. You see, a revival is the essence of what causes the church to become what it is intended to be. But what is the vision? It's the Lord high and lifted up. So in John, the book of John, we see the author, John the Apostle, remark something about Isaiah's vision. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now the entire context is quoting what God speaks in Isaiah 6 to Jesus. And Jesus quotes it in John 12 in his ministry. Then John, when he's writing this gospel account, says this, these things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah spoke of Jesus. That's the context. Isaiah spoke of Jesus. Isaiah saw Jesus's glory. Uh huh. You know who is in Isaiah 6? You know who the Lord is, high and lifted up? That's Jesus. Says it right there. You see, this is not just a statement of his divinity, his godness, his pre-existence before he was born and it was conceived of in the womb of Mary. But it is a statement of that which revives. Same thing. The same thing that was seen in the year King Uzziah died that changed the course of a nation is the same thing that we need to see. We need to see the Lord high and lifted up. The vision is Jesus. He is the one Isaiah saw, and he is the same one we must see. So this is just four different translations of the same scripture. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Now some of you have heard that before. But do you know what the vision is? You know, some of us, it's like, I need to have a business plan. I need to know what I'm doing this vision for. You know, why am I doing, why am I selling this uh, thingamajig? Why am I selling this whatchamacallit? What's the purpose for it? I need a purpose statement. I need to have a reason. Well, that's wise, I guess, if you have a business. We have a church. We have an individual life. And if you don't have the vision, you will perish. If you don't know why you're here on this earth, if you don't have what Isaiah is seeing in Isaiah 6, you perish. You grow weak. You fall to pieces. You don't know why you should resist sin. You don't know why these philosophies are wrong. You just start to become passive to it. 
Leave the doors unlocked. It takes energy to lock them at night. Leave the windows unlocked. Just leave them cracked. Get some fresh air in here. You're letting the world into this dwelling because you forgot why you were here and you forgot what you were placed here for. And so as a result, where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. Without a vision, Young's literal translation literally capitalizes vision. I thought that was pretty cool. That's why I stuck it in there for you. Where, without a vision is a people made naked. Mm, yeah, we don't want that. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. You see, we need a prophetic vision. It's not something that I'm going to give you like, I see something, guys. I see something. It's a chair floating. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the prophetic vision of the Old Testament that every single prophet saw. The same thing. What did they see? Jesus. Jesus is the prophetic vision. Jesus is the vision for the church. Jesus is the vision for every individual life, every marriage, every family. You want a purpose statement? I'll give you one. Jesus. He is what we're here for. Without him, we can't do anything. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the beginning and the ending. He's what starts it, and he's the ultimate fulfillment of it. The entire Old Testament is written to reveal one singular thing. The entire, Old, the entire New Testament shows us that that one thing was fulfilled, and he desires it now to be fulfilled and shown in and through us. It's all about him. If we lose that vision, we lose the whole kit and caboodle. Without the woe, low go, then all that we're doing is empty. Let's marvel at the vision. So I'm going to read this to you again, and I want us to just bask in the reality that this is Jesus. Okay, that's what John 12 is saying. Isaiah saw Jesus. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw Jesus sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, with two he covered his face, with, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Lo, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. Everything about this is a parallel with the church of Jesus Christ. Everything. We see the transfigured Lord of glory, the one risen from the dead, the one that has ascended to the high seat at the right hand of the Father. We see the holy, holy, holy one. And what does it do? It causes us to see our sin, but then it brings us to the cross afresh. It says, because I so loved you, I gave my life for you so that I could purge you from that sin and make you of temple a carrying device 
for my very glory. I love you. Though you are marked by the sin of this world, I will take that from you, and I will make you a vessel fit to carry my burden in this earth. I need someone to go for me. I need someone who's willing to carry this vision. Do I have anyone who will carry this vision? Do I have anyone who will carry Jesus? Because that is the commission. We are to be carriers of the vision. We are to see it and to see his holiness. Then we are to recognize afresh the value of the shed blood. Then we are to recognize the reason we were given this isn't so that we ourselves could just hold on to it for our own comfort and satisfaction, but so that we could spend ourselves the very same way he spent himself for us. And this is revival. This is how it works. The danger of the counterfeit vision. Beware the alternate king that may try to steal Christ's place. As long as Uzziah or another king that sits in defiance of God sits on that throne, we cannot have the woe logo. There is only one vision that brings it about. There's only one thing that must be seen, and that's Jesus Christ in his high and exalted position. The same one that came to the lowest place has been exalted to the highest place. So there's counterfeit vision. There's a throne, and it's amazing how we can stick other things on it. It's like shocking how we can do that. And we as the church of Jesus Christ are famous for it. Think of the word denomination. If you're not familiar with Christianity, I don't even know that I want to introduce you to the word. However, denominations, all our differences, we are very good in conservative Christianity of codifying all our differences. I am different than them because of this. I'm different than them because of this. I'm different than them because of this. Oh, I I mean, they're heretical over here. I mean, I would never dream of thinking that. And so we have our codification, our denominations. We're very good at saying what we are not. And what we have a tendency to do is take our doctrinal distinctions and stick them on a throne. And that becomes our identity. Is that supposed to be our identity? What's supposed to be our vision? Our doctrine? Our knowledge of the text of Scripture? Or the one who fulfills all of Scripture? What are we doing? We do it all the time. So I want to go through some counterfeits. Things that can war within our perspective and in our understanding to try and steal the center stage because every single one of us is vulnerable and every single one of us is vulnerable to different sorts of counterfeits. For instance, I could name a counterfeit and some of you are like, why would anyone do that? I think that all the time when I hear certain doctrinal things. I'm like, who's going to fall for that? I've even said that. I'm not concerned about that in this generation at all because you'd have to be stupid to, to believe that. The next thing you know, Dan comes to me and goes, well, I guess we have a lot of stupid people, Eric, because it's like hitting the entire church and it's the best-selling books in America right now. What? Are you serious? Do people actually buy that? Yes. However, I have certain things that I can fall for too. They're counterfeits. They're things that replace the genuine. Okay, now you can say, what would you fall for, Eric? A different definition of what we're after. God wants to bring a revival. And when I say the word revival, we all have a placeholder of what that means. Oh, that means he's going to bring this? So what is the filler? What do you put right there? He's going to do what? Tell tell me, what what are you thinking he's going to do? Whatever we're putting in there is very, very telling of what we're vulnerable to. 
So we see correct doctrine high and lifted up. So King Uzziah dies, and what do we see lifted up? Correct doctrine. I saw it, it was high and lifted up, and its train filled the temple. And so as long as we get correct doctrine, we'll be healthy as a church. That's revival. No, no, I'm not against correct doctrine, by the way. I'm very much for it. But there's something that is supposed to be sitting in that seat, and it's actually not correct doctrine. Though correct doctrine is an ancillary effect of seeing it, though it is the, the derivative, that which flows out of having a correct sight and that of having the right thing on the throne, it is not that which sits on the throne. We see spiritual gifts high and lifted up. And so in the year King Uzziah died, I saw spiritual gifts high and lifted up. That's what's going to come back. Finally, King Uzziah died. Now we can have spiritual gifts in the church again. Is that what's supposed to sit on the throne? Is there anything wrong with spiritual gifts? No. However, is that what sits on the throne? We see the unity of the body high and lifted up. King Uzziah dies, and then what did I see? I saw unity in the body. No longer did we have discrepancies and divisions and that which would tear us apart. I saw a unified body. Is that, is that what's supposed to be sitting on the throne? Is there something wrong with unity in the body? No. However, is that what's supposed to be center? Is that what we're after? Think about those first three. We could divide up this body into little groups of saying, well, which one do you put as the highest weight there? And we could get into our little cancer. Yeah, this is where we're... And we could have denominations today. We could divide this group into three groups immediately because we are putting something higher than the most important. We see freedom of worship high and lifted up. When everyone in here is finally either on their face weeping or ecstatic in their worship with their hand raising, then we're finally hitting revival. You see what I'm doing? I'm filling in a gap. There's an empty place right here. When revival comes, then this is what we'll see. In the year King Uzziah died, is that what we see high and lifted up? You follow me? I'm trying to get you into my thinking here. Hopefully I'm offending all of you as I do. We see divine healing high and lifted up. When King Uzziah dies, then I saw it. Finally, divine healing swept through the church and dead people were raised again. There is nothing wrong with anything that I am describing except when it takes the place of the throne center. When anything, there's nothing wrong with offering incense in the temple, guys. However, King Uzziah was not supposed to do it. You see, there's things that are right but they're not center. And when something that is merely right becomes the center, it actually becomes wrong. We see God's next great work high and lifted up. One of the number one things that is taking place in our generation is this. We want to see God's next great work. Well, whatever happened to seeing Jesus? You see, do we have to see another work, something that's different than's ever been done before? Or could we just see Jesus? You see, revival is not supposed to be an event back in the 1800s and maybe one that took place in the early 1900s. It's supposed to be the state of the church. When we are living healthy, we live revived. The great revival counterfeit, looking for the wrong thing to come. Be patient, therefore, brothers. I've read this scripture multiple times over the last weeks. Until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. 
You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I think one thing that we are convinced of here in this church is that God is speaking to us, saying, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, I have clarified there's two different C's. Capital C coming, which is the coming in the clouds, the return, the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's a coming. That's a capital C. However, do you know that Jesus comes into every situation? He's a deliverer. He's a savior. He comes into every situation we're in, and sometimes we have to be patient. We have to wait. And then in comes our deliverer and saves us in our circumstances. That's how he works. And so in every situation, we're talking about the coming of the Lord. And what do we need to do? We need to be patient. We need to be patient. See down in the second to the last line. Also be patient. Establish your hearts. This word for patience is a long patience. It is the willingness to go through a great length of difficulty, a great length of time, and stand your ground and don't let go. Why? because the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, if I were to say the coming of the Lord means, and then I put a big line in there, and I gave a piece of paper to each one of you. The reason I'm going through this is because it is this important in and amongst our body, that we know what we're waiting for. If we are confused of what the coming of the Lord is, we're all gonna be looking for something different. If a football team, I used this illustration last week, doesn't all agree on the end zone and what the end zone is. And one guy's like, yeah, it's the the 15th row up, you know, 22nd seat in, and the quarterback throws the football to it. It's like, we're not getting anywhere, guys. We have to agree. What's the end zone? We all point to it. All right, which is the direction we're going? We're on offense, right? All right, we're going to hike that ball. We're going to run our plays to get into that end zone. What is our end zone? What are we after as the church of Jesus Christ? When we say the coming of the Lord is at hand, what does that mean to us? The coming of the Lord. When we say he will come soon, what exactly is it that we are waiting for? I'm going to give seven possible options. Note, I'm sure there are plenty more that could be added. I'm going to give seven options. You're going to notice, now one of these is just outlandish, ridiculous. Five of them are actually really good things. And if you have that in your placeholder, I'm not going to say that it's bad for you to expect that that will happen when the coming of the Lord comes, but it is a derivative. It is a subsidiary thing that happens in the church. For instance, I could say that all throughout revival, there's certain things throughout history that have happened. Conviction of sin and confession of sin. Uh, I mean, entire towns shut down. Uh, because of this. You have prayer that is fervent. In fact, prayer has to precede revival. It's never happened without prayer proceeding, but then it increases during revival to see God move in even a greater way. Then you have outrageous levels of evangelism and many people coming to know Christ in and through it. These are just factors, right? However, when I say the coming of the Lord, you could easily pick something I just said. So, oh, that, that's what's going to happen. And it's not that you're wrong, It's just that you're waiting for the wrong thing. You're waiting for evangelism to burst forth in the church. And I'm saying that is a byproduct of something greater. If we miss the something greater, we're never going to have that byproduct. So option number one, the crazy and bizarre. And it's just sort of sad that I even need to put this one on the screen. However, this is utterly common in today's Christianity. This is one of those things where I would say, you've got to be kidding. No one would actually fall for that. And sure enough, we've had 
mighty revivals, and I put quotes around that just in case someone's hearing a podcast, mighty revivals that have been exactly this. What will happen at the coming of the Lord? We will begin to laugh uncontrollably. Some of us will chirp like birds, others will bark like dogs, and some will even roar like lions. There may even be the rare sighting of one of us slithering around the chairs on our belly like a snake. If it sounds like I'm somewhat mocking it, I'm trying not to. Trying really hard. It is so utterly ridiculous to think that when the life of Jesus comes, he's going to bring us to the level of animals. What in the world is that? This has never in all of history been testified in the word of God or in the true church as anything to expect at the coming of the Lord. Is this what the coming of the Lord is? Is this what he does? Is this the fruit of it? So something's wrong here, okay? And I'm going to say that in case some of you are wondering where I stand. I've gone through this. I've been on tours. I went on a tour through Australia where every place I went, they had had this right before I came. And then I came in to speak. So I'm very familiar with how dangerous this is in the body and uncomfortably uh, familiar with it. I do not want to foster the wrong expectations lest we be duped into behaving as animals afresh. When God comes, he dignifies. He raises upright. Snakes are on their belly. Men stand upright and reveal the glory of God. Option number two, and depending on your background, you can be very susceptible to this one. We're going to call it the tingle. We will get a strange pleasure sensation that runs up and down our spine. Our knees will buckle under us and we will fall prostrate before his majesty. It's a sensation. It's a physical sensation that we would recognize as the coming of the Lord. Oh, God's here. Now, have, I mean, you could ask me, Eric, have you ever had a tingle? Sure. Yeah, I've had those moments when I know the presence of the Lord is, is there. However, I want us to ratify afresh and recalibrate our system around something greater than a tingle. If you don't have a tingle, does that mean God's not there? In other words, we do not measure God based on feeling. Option number three, the outward turn. We will suddenly have a passion for the lost souls around us. We will speak to them with boldness and we will see lives transformed. I don't blame you for sticking this in as an option, as a placeholder. When the coming of the Lord comes, you would be right. This has always been there in the church. However, I want us to recognize that there is something that is meant to sit on that throne that is greater than this. This is something that happens as a result. Woe, low, go is a result. The go has to flow out of something. Number four, the return of spiritual giftings and power. We will suddenly have more vibrancy, life, and enthusiasm in our worship. We will spontaneously break out in the speaking of tongues. Men and women will fall to the ground under the weight of glory. And people will begin to speak out in prophecy and words of knowledge. And the power for physical healing will spring forth as if overnight. Now, we just, uh, it'd be fascinating to take a poll in here after I said that. It's like, so Eric, was this the one that you said was going to happen? Or is this the, one of the options that you say is, is like, shouldn't be in the throne? I would say this has happened in many revivals. Yeah, as uncomfortable as that may be, it has happened in many revivals. However, that isn't the focus of a revival. Woe, low, go flows out of seeing something. One singular thing. We need to behold the coming of that one. 
Option number five, fervent and effectual praying will commence. We will all feel the weight of God's burden and we will be moved by the spirit of God into prayer. Our prayers will be full of warmth, intimacy, and yearning. Zeal will consume us. We'll be constant in our pleading, persistent in our petitions, and fervent in our manner of laying hold of the promises of God. Mm -hmm. Option number six, every single one of these makes sense, except for the first one. Option number six, the capital C. When I say the coming of the Lord, many of you think, oh, the world's ended. Jesus has returned. It's all done, which is not incorrect. However, God desires to come to his church. He desires to have us see him, to behold his glory so that we can function as we ought. So when we wait just for the capital C, we have a tendency to miss the lowercase c. We will all see him in the clouds and then we which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with him and meet him in the air. He will set his feet upon the Mount of Olives and the mountain will crack right down the middle and separate in two. It will happen. It's actually what it says in scripture will happen. It will. Option number seven. So this is what I'm going to present to you as the vision. This is what is supposed to sit on the throne. This is what our expectation is. I am not opposed to the ancillary effects of revival. I am not opposed and I do not ever want to hinder what the Spirit of God would do in and through a people revived. If he masters this environment, if he is the Lord of this environment, he is the Lord of this environment. And he will direct according to the Word of God in Scripture. He will never violate it. But he will reveal Jesus in and through his church. He will. And if he chooses to do that by awakening spiritual gifts within this body, stirring them unto action... So be it. However, our goal and our aim is not any of the things I've mentioned. Those are byproducts, things that happen as a result of something greater. I want to introduce you to the something greater. His name is Jesus. He's the authentic vision. We will encounter Jesus afresh, or maybe for the very first time. We will really see him. The blur will be removed. We will see him high and lifted up. We will be transfixed by his glory. We will be awed by his grand love. We will be thunderstruck by his victory on the cross. We'll be thoroughly amazed by the absoluteness of his triumph. And every little thing that might threaten to block, hinder, or slow his triumphal entry into our inner sanctuary to take his seat of authority, we will hastily, zealously, and passionately bulldoze out of the way, lest anything might rob from what we are beholding. Our lives will become singular in their focus. The Holy Spirit will have us, and the Holy Spirit will show us more and more and more of Jesus. So what I just read for you is the cause. The effect is known as revival. The cause is a person. You see, when you behold the person, everything changes in your life. It's like the proper context. If you lose Jesus, you lose your compass, your true north. And you're vulnerable to sticking something else in the north position as your compass. And that's where almost every denominational split comes from. People make subsidiary issues a focus. You see, if you're dividing over the person of Jesus, I'd say it's a pretty good thing to divide over. If someone's going to say, he's nothing, he's not all that, he's not God in the flesh, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, you see, those are fighting words where we come from. You see, we don't mess with Jesus. He is the vision. Don't mess with this vision. If anyone gives you any other gospel than what was revealed to you in and through Paul, 
throw it out, even if it comes from an angel. You see, there is one clear vision, one clear gospel. It is Jesus. And when we stick that at the center, everything comes into alignment. The end zone, good football term. Where are we headed as a church? For us, I believe it's very, very important for us to define an end zone. We have to know what we're after. And that's tricky because we are a melting pot of denominational persuasion. We're all conservative. We all believe the Word of God is, in fact, the Word of God. We believe that it reveals Jesus Christ, and He is the Word of God made flesh, and He is God in bodily form. We also believe that what He did on that cross was the work of God on our behalf, and there was no other means of salvation but what was done on that cross. Hey, we're in agreement. However, are we in agreement with what God would do if He moved in, if He had all of us, these were His bodies, and He could call the shots and do whatever He saw fit? Are we in agreement with what he would do? Oh, ah, fascinating thought. So here's my answer. What is our end zone? Our end zone is Isaiah 6. That's what I'm going to say. You could call it the cheater's way out. However, that's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say our end zone is Isaiah 6. We must all become woe logoed. That's what I'm after for you. That's what I'm after for me. That's what I'm after for my marriage, my family, each of my kids, each of you. And that's what I want for the church of Jesus Christ around this world. Because unless the church is woe, low, goad, unless we are captivated with a singular vision, we can't unite. Our worship will be errant to start with. What are we worshiping for? Have you ever had that thought that some people maybe just be, are worshiping because it feels good? It, they, they have some kind of emotional thrill in and through worship as opposed to their seeing the Lord high and lifted up and their natural response. The, the response that they have to have is they have to adore it. If there was a beautiful mountain scene out the back, there is, okay? But say it's like there's a, there's a swan on the lake. It's, it's uh, dusk. And so what we have is the sun going down behind the mountains and we have this roseate hue. Okay, maybe there's some clouds to just amplify it, right? It's gorgeous, but you've never seen it. So I, I tell you, I go, hey, guys, uh, let's sing a song and, and praise uh, God's creation. He has a beautiful sunset out there. And so I lead you in it like, oh, beautiful sunset. What an amazing sunset you are. Thank you, God, for creating such a beautiful sunset. And you sing it over and over. You raise your hand. Maybe one of you has a streamer or a banner, and you run around with it. Now, here, I'm going to ask you a question. Did you see the sunset? Because you're singing about something you don't know. Now, you're trusting me. I saw it. And you're like, well, I trust Eric, though. And he saw it. And he, he has good taste, I'm guessing. And so if he said it's beautiful, then I believe it's beautiful. Why are we worshiping? We worship that which has stirred us, that which we have beheld. That's what worship flows out of. No one needs to twist your arm to worship if you've seen it. Worship is not meant to be some kind of strategy. Any more than me telling my wife that I love her has to be some weird, awkward thing. If I love her, I love her. And it should come out not just in words, but in everything I do. If I love my children, it shouldn't have to be just one form. It's every form. My kids should say, my dad loves me. They go, how do you know? Well, he wrote me a a note once that said, I love you. They should see it in everything I do. We shouldn't just have a time of worship. We should worship. 
You follow me? A time of worship gives us as, an, as a church an opportunity to corporately share in the vitality of exclamation. But this is one version. You see, we oftentimes isolate out and we say, well, if God moved, then this is what it would look like. I think it would look far greater if we put Jesus at the center. Far greater than anything you could imagine in your mind what the church could be like. I don't think I've ever tasted I've had little hints of it, but usually in smaller group settings where you taste the intimacy of fellowship in the body of Christ when you're all on your faces weeping before God. It knits you. It knits you unlike anything else and all the funny biases and opinions that you have about them and their funny beliefs over here and the way they, they do this. I mean, the food they eat, they eat sugar over in this house. All the funny things melt away. And you realize those things don't matter. We're all about Jesus here. My answer, our end zone is Isaiah 6. What do I mean by that? We need to see what Isaiah saw when King Uzziah died. That's what we need to see. Everything that we would say we want to see return to the church would happen if we saw it if we truly saw his holy, holy, holiness. Now you should gulp a few times before you start asking boldly to see his holy, holy, holiness. Because you're not just gonna get a feel-good service. It's gonna bring you to your knees, bring you to your face, to recognize that we are not the saviors. We are not the answer for this world. Some of us still are thinking of building our kingdom, our ministry, our reputation, we want to be something. When you see his holy, holy, holiness, you aren't something anymore. It's the low that rescues you. The woe is seeing him. The low is his condescension to say, but I love you. And I've cleansed you, though you are unlike me. But the low only makes sense in light of that woe, but that woe is a big woe. If you want the woe, God will give you the woe. I would say we need it. And if there's a little trepidation inside of you, just everything I've said over the past four weeks, it's like, hey guys, are we willing to set these things off to the side? If you're not willing to get rid of your King Uzziah tendencies, your King Uzziah behaviors, you want the vision, you want the woe logo, but you want it on your terms, you simply will not get it as long as you're laying in that hospital bed still breathing in that old life and that old behavior. Let it die. Give it up. Let it go. The Apostle Paul was woe, low, goad. We now have a new word. But what things were gained to me, says Paul, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. What is Paul seeing? He's seen one thing and he counts all things loss for more of that. Anything that would distract him, he counts it rubbish. Anything that would hinder him from knowing and having a greater understanding of who Jesus is, it's the greatest enemy of his life. 
Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Four steps to changing the world. So this is a summary of the last four weeks. The first week was called going after revival. Basically saying that revival is not something that randomly strikes the earth. It's something that we find just as a farmer finds crop. He does what he is commissioned to do. The Bible lays out how a farmer is supposed to do things, how we as Christians are supposed to do things. Just till the soil, break up the fallow ground, plant the seed of truth, embrace it, receive it with joy, but then remove all that hinders, remove the weeds, remove the rocks, get that out, water it, consistently water it, put it in the sun, and then wait patiently. The harvest will come. You see, we are called to be like that, farmers that are patient. So the patient farmer, do what you know to do. Till that soil, break up that compacted earth where you have low-lying justifications and rationalizations that are actually hindering any growth. You can pray over your land all you want and say, God, out of this parched earth, bring forth a crop. And God says, I want you to break up the fallow ground. You walk in disobedience, you're not going to get the crop of obedience. A farmer must do something. You have a job. You can't bring forth the crop, but you can't obey. God has given you something to do. You must do it. The Carmelized Intercessor is based on Mount Carmel and Mount Elijah. So that one, that message was called the Carmelized Saints. And that basically is those that see what God wants to do, which was in this case, bring rain back to the land of Israel. Rain hadn't been there for three and a half years. Parched earth. And Elijah says, I hear the sound of an abundance of rain. I hear the sound of an abundance of rain too. You see, I see around us and I see the darkness that is pervading our culture. I see the weakness of the church and I see the church turning away from the word of God. I see the church placing other things on the throne other than Jesus Christ. And I see the damaging effects of that. I see a weakened body of Christ. However, I hear the sound of an abundance of rain, and I guarantee you if I'm hearing it, it's not just me. I have a hunch other people are hearing it too. God is the God of the impossible, and right now, to resurrect the church of Jesus Christ in this nation and to turn this nation from its sin would be classified as impossible. Every single one of us that is a thinking person would have to agree with that. Yep, that's not going to happen through politics. That's not going to happen through laws. How would it happen then? Well, there's only one solution I've ever seen in all of history. Revival. Well, how does that work? Well, I'm trying to clarify how it doesn't so that you know how it does. The church must return to its north star. Must fix its compass to the same thing. Do we see it? Do we see the Lord high and lifted up? Do we see his all-deserving majesty? Do we see that he is preeminent in all things? So Carmelize, the Carmelized intercessor, bend those knees and pray. And pray and pray until the rain comes. So the Carmelized saints are those that get into position of prayer and do not relent until the rain actually comes. Number three, the zealous bond slave. This was last week's message, which was living on bread and water. That was the name of it. 
It says, yield your body, allow the Holy Spirit to have every last inch of what Christ purchased. We talked about the mastery of the Holy Spirit last week. Many of us talk about the Holy Spirit. I'm not even saying here, but we can talk about the Holy Spirit in modern Christianity as sort of a light, fluffy, fun-giving, tingle-giving servant of ours. That's the exact opposite of what the Holy Spirit does. He brings deep conviction so he can remove the big boulders and that which stands in the way of Jesus Christ being seen clearly. He's the one that gives the vision. He's the one that brings Uzziah to his end. That's what he's saying to many of us. Get Uzziah out of there, guys. Why are you keeping him on life support? Knock him out of that hospital bed. You don't want to pay any more bills for that. Just rid yourself of King Uzziah living so that you can see As long as your old life lives, you can't see clearly. Put it off, people. This is the Holy Spirit. And then what does the Holy Spirit do? He opens your eyes to see the Lord high and lifted up. And his train filling the temple. And what does he say to you? This is the way it's supposed to be in your temple. He's supposed to be high and lifted up in your temple so that his train, his glory, could fill the entire thing. You see... The Holy Spirit is the one that brings you the vision of the holy, holy, holiness of God. And then what does that bring you? The vision of the necessity of the shed blood. And what does that bring you? The realization of why you're here. I have one life to live. God, I don't want to waste it. This is for you. You gave everything for me. The least I could do is give my body back to you. You purchased it. Take it. The mastery of the Holy Spirit the zealous bond slave, pierce my ear, whatever you ask of me, my answer is yes, even before you ask. When the church becomes these things, watch out world. And then today, the woe-low-goed missionary, the revived soul, humbled, broken, forgiven, ready, and commissioned to go. How do we become that? We have to see. If you don't see, you're gonna be a pathetic missionary. If you don't see, you're gonna be a pathetic leader of a church. If you don't see, you're going to be a pathetic leader of your marriage and your family. If you don't see, I could do it in the inverse. You're going to be a terrible child. (laughs) You're not going to show respect and honor to your parents. Why? Because you don't see. You don't understand. If you don't see, you're going to be a terrible citizen in this country. We have quite a few problems in that direction today. We have zero respect and zero regard for authority. Why? It all comes back to the fact that we have no respect for the true authority of Jesus Christ and his word. We lose that. Why would we expect anyone to have respect for any other authority? Because all authority flows from that throne. We've lost our moorings. Let's get them back and let's start right here in each of us. If you know what you ought to do, then do it. He who knows what he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. The definition of righteousness, doing that which you ought to do, doing that which God would do, is seeing what you ought to do and doing it. That's what it is. That is the righteous response to anything the Holy Spirit pokes at in your life. I know it sounds too simple, but do it. Some of us plead the the sovereign uh, card and go, oh, but I have no ability to do God does not play games with us. If he is convicting you of sin, he has also given you the grace for obedient response. So respond and do not mock God with your doctrine.
We want to be very simple in this matter of revival. Revival is just the life of, Lord, of the Lord Jesus poured into human hearts. When that happens, the world is changed. What are we waiting for, people? The coming of the Lord. Be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for Jesus to return to his rightful throne. Where we see it clearly, we respond to it rightly. And the world, not just our life, is changed. This is what the church is built for. It is built to be revived and sustained in that revival by the Holy Spirit. Right now, we are fighting for life. Many of us are still in our hospital beds, esteeming rising up and walking. However, we need to let go of our life as we now know it. All of those comforts, all of those pleasures, your entire philosophy may need to be thrown into the trash. That life is all about you. What's funny is if you're talking to me, I know you would not give me that as your life philosophy. However, underlying your correct doctrine may be a philosophy that is counteracting your correct doctrine, which is, it still doesn't make me feel good. But what's in it for me? Whoa, whoa, whoa. If you're lugging that around, throw it in the trash. Let it die with Uzziah. Until you give up you and make self lowercase s. Take capital I and make it small with a little dot over it. It is no longer you that is capital in your life. It is Jesus. Until that happens, you're not going to understand revival. Because that is revival. Revival is Jesus being capitalized once again. Jesus taking his rightful position. When the Lord Jesus comes, he reigns. He takes his church and he's the head of it. So let's allow him to take what is rightfully his. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.